Well, each Christmas, my family and I work through Advent readings. We have 25 of them that count us down to the big day, to Christmas Day. Now, with most of the readings we do, there's a question at the end. It's some form of, of a practical application. It causes us to think about the reading and how it applies to our lives. Uh, recently, a question was asked, which name of Jesus means the most to you this season? Now, there's over 150 different names for Jesus or titles throughout the Bible. And my response to this was what you might call a little dull. I said the name Jesus of Nazareth. That's not very grand, very theological, but maybe on the other hand it is. Uh, The name Jesus of Nazareth represents Jesus in the flesh, God in the flesh. Jesus of Nazareth represents his humanity. And in recent weeks, as you've observed, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew's been counting down the days of Jesus to the cross. He's been recording his final day. And now more recently, we've been in the Gospel of Luke. It's the incarnation of Jesus, God come in the flesh. And we affirm this, that Jesus took on human flesh, 100% flesh. So with all that said, his humanity has been on my mind, thus my answer. But this morning on New Year's Day, I'd like to balance this out. I want us to see that Jesus came not only in the flesh, but that Jesus is 100% divine. You see, for you and I to think of Jesus as only fully man, to think of him as our friend or, or as our buddy, it's, it's to lose something of who he is, to lose his majesty and his glory and his holiness. But on the other hand, to think of Jesus as only God, it's to fail to see his human experience and grasp that. It's to, to, to de-emphasize or even to marginalize his experience. We know that the Bible strikes a perfect balance. Fully man, yet fully God. So is Jesus. And it's important, furthermore, that on this New Year's Day, we think rightly about Jesus. Because how we think about the Lord matters. If you and I are going to worship a weak Jesus, we're going to have a weak faith. If we worship a Jesus who is a mighty king, it's going to nurture a mighty faith. In other words, our faith will never outgrow our thoughts of God. So do you think about Jesus? Not just this morning, or not only in church, but does he occupy your thoughts? Does he cross your mind outside of Sunday? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 reads, We behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed. Of that verse, John Piper observed that some say here, seeing is believing, but in this verse, seeing is becoming. Did you catch that? As you gaze upon Jesus, you become more like him. He concludes what you value enough to focus on, you will become like So here on this New Year's Day, I want you to gaze upon the Lord. And we will come back in the weeks to come and finish the Gospel of Matthew. We will see Jesus in his humanity, 
He will be crucified for your sin. But this morning, I want to look beyond that to the risen Christ, to gaze upon him and to balance out what we will witness in this Gospel of Matthew to begin 2023 on the right foot. Well, that's my introduction to Revelation chapter 1. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles with me. And this morning, we will behold nine perfections of Christ the King. Now, there's two reasons to fret this morning. The first concerns a nine-point sermon. Nine points, nine perfections. Don't worry, this is about average length. We'll keep moving, I I think. The second might arise from the book itself. It's the book of Revelation. Revelation has a reputation for being an intimidating book. If the New Testament books were professors in a university, you probably wouldn't take Revelation. It's tough. But at the outset, I I want you to to know that that you can read and you can understand the book of Revelation. And just think about it. Think about the name of the book, Revelation. This is a book that that God wants you to hear and understand. Uh, The name of the book says something of its message. And that's not to diminish it. It is harder to understand. It could require additional study or reading this. Those things are true. But we recognize that the Lord wants you and I to know the end of the story, and he wants us to know that now. And as an aside, next Sunday, beginning at at 9 o'clock in in our Sunday school series, we're going to do a deep dive through Bible prophecy, and eventually we'll go through this book verse by verse. So that's an opportunity for you to come and learn more about what is to come. All that aside now, don't focus on the sermon length and don't worry about the interpretive challenges. My invitation to you is to gaze upon Christ and gaze upon Christ as he's revealed himself this morning. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 and and begin here just to get some context on what's happening. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, this is John the disciple, not John the Baptist. And you see he's located on an island called Patmos, and this is in the Aegean Sea. There's a Roman historian named Tacitus who records the Romans use this island to place their exiles. If you're a prisoner for whatever reason, they may throw you out on an island. That's how they dealt with them. What is John the disciple doing there? What is his crime? His crime is faithfulness to God. John could have either lived a comfortable life in the affluent city of Ephesus if he would just quiet down and mind his business, or he could be exiled to an ancient version of Alcatraz, minus any shelter and meal served. What did John choose? His reply in verse 9, he chose the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, his decisions made. He continues in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John describes himself as, quote, in the spirit. Here is John 
um, under the control of the Holy Spirit, he's, he's taken to some plane of existence beyond our normal realm. Why is he here? Well, he's there to record divine truth, to send letters to seven churches. And John experiences what you and I might call a heart-stopping moment. You know, it's one thing to hear the revelation. It's another thing to see the revealer. In verse 12, the heart of our message, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were, like, were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. I want us to see first this morning here the position of Jesus Christ the King. The position of Christ the King. He stands as Lord in the middle of his churches. Now, some of you will reply, Michael, I don't see the Lord in this passage, and I don't see his churches. After all, this is the book of Revelation, right? Well, look at verse 12. John saw seven golden lampstands. Look down at verse 20. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. John tells us what the lampstands represent. This concept of a lampstand goes all the way back into the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a backdrop for for much of the New Testament. It's a backdrop for the book of Revelation. You know the Old Testament word for lampstand, by the way. It's the word menorah. In the tabernacle in the Old Testament, in the temple in the Old Testament, lampstands lined the walls. It was pitch black inside of these rooms. One priestly duty was to light the candles and to care for the lampstands. So in verse 13, we see this son of man standing in the middle of seven lampstands. To take it a little further, he stands in the center of seven churches. Now I mentioned here that the son of man is Jesus. How do you know this? Well, because Jesus says so. The son of man was one of his favorite ways to refer to himself through all four gospels. I think it's something like 80 times Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. But again, we go to the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives us really good background on what's happening here. Daniel chapter 7 plays an important role in this passage. Daniel, like John, received uh, incredible revelations, otherworldly revelations from God. He writes in verse 13 of chapter 7, I kept looking in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's really word for word. One like a son of man. 
In Daniel 7, Jesus approached God the Father, or, or the Ancient of Days, and God gives Jesus the kingdom. Well, here the scene then begins with Jesus positioned among his churches. He's in the center or in the middle of these churches. He occupies the position of captain. Last summer, Heather and I visited the the USS Midway. It's a carrier based in San Diego, and they turned the U.S. carrier into a museum. It's fantastic. And up on top of the, the island, it's that part of the carrier that sticks out above the flight deck, is the the operating room. And strategically placed in the middle of that room is a chair, and it's the captain's chair. And when the captain sits in that chair, he can operate the the carrier, he can communicate to all the necessary and and different functions just from sitting in that chair. That's very much a picture of where Jesus is among his churches. Not only in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1 in this scene, but, but even to today. Jesus is Lord of the churches. It is Jesus who is directing and he's, he's building and he's overseeing his churches. The seven letters he sent to his churches, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, they're a word for you and I even in our day. It's very helpful. We, we have a clear message. We know what to do. Jesus tells what he expects of his churches. Well, secondly, I want you to notice in this passage his attire. In verse 13, we see his priesthood. He's clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet. He is girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, Jesus adorns the clothing of an Old Testament priest. Leviticus 16, verse 4, instructs their dress. The priest shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash. This priest would then go in in the right attire, the the full attire, and he would carry out his priestly duties in the temple. Exodus chapter 30, verse 7, Aaron, he's the first high priest of Israel. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on the altar. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Do you see what's happening here? The priest cares for the lampstand. He trims the wicks twice a day. He's refilling oil. He's burning incense. And just as his high priest cared for those lamps on that lampstand, so too does Jesus, our high priest, care for his church. Remember in verse 13, he's standing as Lord in the midst of his churches. The author of Hebrews loves to speak about Jesus as high priest. In that book, our high priest, in chapter 2, verse 17, he makes propitiation for sins. That word means that Jesus satisfied God's wrath against us. And that he has reconciled you and I to God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, our high priest can sympathize with our weaknesses, being tempted in all things as you and I are, yet without sin. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, our high priest became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. And in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, our high priest does not need daily, like other high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. 
because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This is so good. Jesus, our Lord and our mediator, is Jesus, our king and our priest. John goes on in verse 14. Thirdly, he describes his head and his hair. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. Now we know the book of Revelation is just packed with symbols. I think John had to be overwhelmed by all he saw. He's just grappling at words to describe what he's taking in. I mean, his experience is foreign. It's, it's literally from another world. It's bizarre, and it's fantastic, and it's alien, and it's all of these things at once. And I think he's doing the best he can to record it into language that we can understand. He's trying to, to look for words and symbols from the world we know to describe the world he saw. In our five verses, he uses the word like seven times. It's, it's a way to, to compare and to bring over what he witnesses. He describes this person that he sees head and hair like wool and like snow, eyes like a flame, feet like bronze, voice like many waters, face like the sun. John uses that little word like 71 times throughout the book, just trying to express what he's seen. Now, I don't believe that the risen Jesus has a white head and white hair, but rather they symbolize something of who he is, something of his perfections. And I believe here in verse 14, we read of his eternality, his eternality. We sung of it this morning. David explained in that hymn how it it fought against some of the heresies and false teachings happening in early Christianity. Jesus is on par with God the Father, God the Father being completely eternal, and Jesus himself as well. Why eternality, Michael? Why why is that what this means? Well, again, we see similar language in Daniel 7. God revealing himself through a prophet. Daniel writes, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Again, here's this picture of God the Father from the Old Testament. Magnificent, otherworldly. He he is eternal, and that's now applied to Jesus the Son in the New. To describe the Son of Man in Revelation 1 to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, that's to declare that Jesus has always existed. God the Father God the Son, they have no beginning and no end. In fact, verse 14 then points to his eternality, to his wisdom, and to his knowledge, and to his understanding. Look at the rest of verse 14. Fourthly, it's a fourth perfection. John writes that his eyes were like a flame of fire. Jesus possesses a deep, penetrating gaze. Have you ever experienced that type of a gaze? Maybe from an employer, or a parent, maybe as a parent. It's, it's, for Jesus, with with one look, he knows all things. You know, we're coming up uh, on the end of Matthew's gospel, and, and, and it's the story of Peter's denials. Jesus is on trial. 
He's inside a residence in some way. He can see out into the courtyard. Peter's out in the courtyard. In Luke 22, Peter denies Jesus for the third time, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine the power of that gaze? It's like a lump in your throat. Your throat turns into a lump. It's so powerful. You see, the gaze of Jesus, and he knows all things. In fact, in each of the seven letters, I mentioned that they're in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, these seven letters to the churches, and in each one of them, Jesus begins with a different form of I know. I know your deeds. I know your tribulation. I know where you live. We say Jesus is omniscient, that he knows all things. You know, a few years ago, the, the Hubble telescope brought back images that made it possible to, to estimate the number of stars in the known galaxies. There's an equation to do this. 100 billion stars in the Milky Way times 2 trillion galaxies. And the answer to this equation, the number of stars, is the number 2 followed by 23 zeros. The Bible says he counts the number of stars, he gives names to them all. Such is the knowledge of Jesus the Christ. His understanding is infinite, great is our Lord, and abundant in strength. I want you to see, fifthly, in verse 15, John describes his feet. His feet were like burnished bronze where it has been made to glow in a furnace. A burnished is just another word for polished. That's clear enough. But the word for bronze, maybe some of your Bibles say copper or something to that effect, that, that particular element, this word can't be found anywhere else. It's not a Greek word for bronze. The Greek language has its own word for bronze, and this isn't the one. It's close. That's why our Bible version is translated as bronze. There's no literature outside the Bible that used this word that John's used. But the Bible does use it one other time. John is the one who writes it, and it's over in chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. I think this helps us to understand what John might be communicating. One of the perfections of Jesus. Here, he pairs this up with the eyes, flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze. These two come together. And I believe here this all-knowing Christ is able to pass perfect judgment. He knows all things about the church. He writes, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service. And he renders judgment. Chapter 2, verse 22. Speaking to this church, writing to this church, Behold, I will throw Jezebel the prophetess on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. The Lord Jesus possesses an omniscience, an infinite amount of wisdom and knowledge. 
and is able to harness that and bring that to bear to rightly divide and to rightly judge individuals, you and I, but also his churches. Sixthly, in verse 15, his voice dominates. His voice dominates. His voice was like the sound of many waters. It's like the decibel power of Niagara Falls. I read somewhere that it measures 90 decibels. That's five decibels louder than a passing diesel truck on the freeway. I believe here that John communicates the dominance of the voice of Jesus. It is booming. It is mighty. It is authoritative. But what's his message? What is he communicating with this booming voice? Well, we can answer that in a few different ways. Firstly, we have the complete Bible. The complete Word of God is the message of Jesus to you and I. Maybe a little closer here, we have a few themes throughout the seven letters that Jesus communicates. But there's one theme I want to highlight this morning. It's throughout the Bible, it's in these letters. Seven times to these churches does he command, repent. Repent. The booming voice of Jesus calls you and I to repent. To Ephesus, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. To Pergamum, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. To Sardis, remember where you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you want a word for 2023, this is it. If you want a resolution for the new year, this is it. To repent isn't something we just do at the moment that we come to faith in Jesus. It is a lifestyle for the Christian. Repentance is ongoing for the believer. To repent is to to turn or to change one's mind, to, to turn from going this way and begin to go that way. You see, we need this word even as believers. Regularly, constantly, Satan and the world and the culture are bombarding us. They're enticing you and I to reframe reality and to redefine truth around what seems right in our own eyes, around what feels good. This is true for even Christians. We're getting it constantly influenced by our news cycle and by our social media. We're influenced by Hollywood, possibly even our friends, and let alone our own hearts. What do they tell us? Do not look to Christ. Don't gaze upon Christ. Focus on you. You have a life to live. I mean, you pray a prayer, right? You got some salvation. You're going to heaven when you die. You need to go live for you now. Jesus will come along. Jesus calls Christians to repent. This week, go home and read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Seven letters written, not to unbelievers, but to believers. Seven letters written, not to, to communities of the lost, but to communities of faith. Jesus calls Christians, he calls you and me, he calls you and I to repent, to examine our lives, and to bring them under the authority of the Lord Jesus. He speaks this morning with a voice that has the sound of many waters, and he speaks to you and I saying, look to me, gaze upon me, bring your life underneath my instruction.'"
He says to repent. If there's any deceptions, any, any disobedience, any kind of departure from the standard of God, Jesus invites us to gaze upon him and to align our lives to his. Well, seventhly, in his right hand, he's holding seven stars. This here is an image of authority. In the Bible, the right hand depicts authority. It depicts power. Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. If you look down again to verse 20, Revelation chapter 1, the end of that verse tells us what these stars symbolize. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Working through Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, at the the beginning of each letter, there's an introduction to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church at Sardis, and so on. An angel is addressed at the beginning of each of the seven letters. And the first thought that comes to mind are what? Heavenly beings. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, right? We read that at Christmas. That's the immediate thought when we hear angel. But the Greek word also means simply messenger. John the Baptist was a messenger. Behold, I send my messenger, the same word, angelos, translated as angel, translated as messenger. John the Baptist, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. So which is it here? Is Jesus writing through John to heavenly angels, to heavenly beings? Is he dictating mail? Does Jesus want to speak through John to heavenly beings? That seems a little odd. And if they are human messengers, how are they getting this mail from John while he's exiled over in Patmos? So whatever the solution here is, I I believe the point is that Jesus holds in his right hand these messengers. He holds all authority over his church. Eighthly, that includes the authority to judge. That includes the authority to judge. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, we touched on this already. We've discussed authority and lordship, and we've discussed judgment previously because there's some overlap here, I believe, in what John is communicating. Here, in the mouth of the Lord, is a sword. The Greek word describes a, a Roman sword. This is a broad sword. It's a double-edged sword. It was meant to go on the offensive in a military action, to cut and to slice, to stab. Revelation speaks this way of Jesus a total of five times. And he speaks a judgment, Jesus does. To say it another way, for the Lord to execute judgment, he never needs to lift a finger. He simply speaks. That's the power of his word. In fact, so powerful are his words that merely reading them can be effective. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Christ judges through his word. Jesus speaks to you and I in our day through his word. A regular exposure to it 
It's what's going to conform us to the image of Christ. Gazing upon Jesus through his word changes us. You and I need this. We need some kind of a gauge or a a barometer. We need some form of a manual to judge our hearts. Why? Because the human heart has a way of, 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 of manipulating and getting off the path. The human heart is quite an imagination. And we need to keep coming back constantly to drink from this spring of water called the Word of God. It's able to divide what is right and what is wrong, how to live and how not to live. Our Lord judges, not only in retribution, but just in the daily discernment that you and I need to live lives for the Lord with clarity and with power. John writes, lastly, of his face. At the end of verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Have you ever looked at the sun? Get those weird spots for a little bit. Feels a little too long for a moment. You're kind of worried that I just hurt my eyes permanently. John saw in the face of Jesus a light. It was a brightness that was just too much for him to bear. We call this his glory. The glory of God is, is the sum total of who he is. It's the expression of all of who Jesus is. And often in the Bible, it's, it's expressed in some form of light. His powerful lordship. His loving priesthood. His eternal nature. His knowledge of all things. His perfect judgment. His merciful dominance. And his uncontested authority. These things which we saw this morning, these are the glory of Jesus. Exposure to this divine being, it yields a result. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. John responds to what stands before him. But I want you to see the response of Jesus. The seven stars of his right hand, we we just read about them. These seven messengers, evidently he set them aside to touch just one, just one person, just this man named John, exiled in his name. And John hides his face. His heart's racing. His palms sweating. He's he's frozen like a dead man. Do not be afraid. That's a voice that he recognizes. He may not have known up to this point who this being was before him, but I bet he knew the voice. He's gazed upon the person of Jesus the Christ. And that's my my invitation to you here this morning. To behold the divinity of Jesus in all of his perfections, in all of his glory, in all of who he is, and to see him as the resurrected king. For some, this new year, this would be the first time that you did a deep dive in your relationship with Jesus. Jesus. 
And perhaps at some point in the past, there's some seeds of faith got going. You've heard the message of eternal life and you've believed, but it never really got started. Let this year be the year you get going to gaze upon Jesus. For others here this morning, this might be a time to get reacquainted. You have fond memories of walking with the Lord many years ago. But somehow, in some way, things went sideways, and you never really linked up with the Lord again. Let this year be the year that you do that, to gaze upon Jesus. And for others yet, there are some here on the island of Patmos. You're suffering in this hot, deserted land, feeling far from the Lord and distant. A gaze upon Jesus. May we all see Christ clearly so that we can all, may, we can all live for Christ fully. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are our resurrected King. The fullness of your glory is incomprehensible. We read of what John saw and how he described it. It's, it's amazing, Lord, and I pray that you would help our hearts to be in awe and to revere you and to praise you. I pray for each of us this year, Lord, that you would grant us a grace to worship you and to make you king of our lives, that we'd hold back no area of our lives, but we give ourselves fully to you, for you are worthy. You are our king, and we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.